The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Sounds of the Anteater Kingdom on 88.9 FM KUCI in Irvine. Hello there, my name's Shane Burke, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Tech Talk, and uh, joining me today is uh, Neil Manitol. He is an information security engineer for AT&T Interactive and the Orange County lead for OWASP, which stands for, of course, the Open Web Application Security Project, in case you've never heard of that. And he will also be teaching a class on web application uh, security at the UCI Extension. So thanks for joining me, Neil. Thanks for having me. Uh, forgot to turn on your mic. Now, now, now we should be good. Um, so, now I, I basically wanted to ask you: How did you get started? Um, how did you get involved in security? Is it? I. I it's kind of all an accident. But at the same time, it kind of makes sense. Um, when I was younger, I liked to take things apart and see how they worked. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to figure out you know, how things are built, what they're made out of. You know, usually when something breaks, and if you understand how it works, you can fix it better. Um, then sort of, you know, I got into computers pretty late in the game. Um, I didn't really get into computers until maybe my senior year in high school. I came into college as a math major. I actually switched. And I, you know, I, I really liked programming. So then, uh, you know... Went through all these classes, took a few really interesting ones. I went here at UCI. Yeah. Um, some really great classes, and got hired uh, by Administrative Computing Services right out right. of college. NACS, right? Uh, right. Now here. they're merged in OIT with NACS. Oh, okay. Um, but they were the other side of the coin. And then, you know, they had a position. I wasn't really interested in it. Um, they offered me a different one. They said, you know, we have this cl- uh, position open in security. And I said, you know, I took a couple of cryptography classes in a little bit. And I said, sure, why not? Um, and then just sort of as things went, uh, they found a huge need for application security, and I knew nothing about it. I knew how to program, I knew how to make web applications, but I didn't really know anything about security. And so they asked me to make a presentation, I learned a lot about it, I taught it, and then from that point on I just realized I was good at it and I loved it, and you know, I started reading a lot more and getting you know, really involved in a lot of things, and you know, sort of how I used to like to take things apart you know, if I understood how they were built, now I could take web applications apart if I knew how they were built. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Actually, uh, I'm, I found it even later than you. I, I wanted to, um, like, double major, but I was too far along in my college education to do anything in ICS. So it was just, um, uh, I mean, I, I basically just taught myself, kind of, I guess the same way you did, except you majored in computer science. So you obviously know a lot more than I do. Um, but, you know, it's very interesting just kind of how people, um, you know, find, find what they're interested in and, and uh, you know, just kind of follow what they're interested in. It, it, it's, um, I don't know, I, I, I find it very interesting and I really like it. Um, would you say that, um, uh, actually, I wanted to ask you about OWASP first. So you're, you're active in OWASP. How did you hear about it? 
And uh, when exactly did you get started with that, and how? Uh, actually, it goes back to that uh, task where I was asked to, you know, learn about application security. Um, they wanted me to put together a presentation, and the easiest way to put together a presentation is to base it off something that's already built. So there was a couple lists out there. OWASP Top Ten is one of them. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was it was really easy to sort of uh, structure the whole presentation based on that. And not only that, but OWASP has a lot of materials. Um, so I would go to their website every time I needed to learn something. And, uh, you know, from there, uh, you know, I met someone at a conference who was heavily involved in OWASP. And he said, hey, you know, does UCI want to become involved with OWASP? You know, you can become an educational supporter for free. You know, we get to have our logo up there. You know, it kind of shows that yeah, we care. Yeah. Um, and then from that point on, you know, I started going to local meetings. Um, the local Orange County chapter lead uh, went back to school. I filled in the void. I put together a conference in August of last year. And then from then, it just sort of, you know, took off. You know, I, now I'm part of the OWASP leaders group. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of the internal communications. We're actually organizing a national conference yeah, at UC, UC Irvine yeah. yeah, in September. So it sort of all happened within the span of like maybe two years. You know, I hear about OWASP. I learn about OWASP. You know, I start, you know, organizing events for OWASP. And now, you know, we're now up to the national conference. So Yeah, wow. That's, um, that's really cool. Sorry. My uh, mic just keeps... We're in a different studio than we usually are. We're pre-recording this show. Um, I mean, yeah, because I recently, I, I'm just signed up with you guys, like, for the Orange County chapter, and then we kind of, um, because of the conference that's coming up, yeah. we haven't been having meetings. Um, but, you know, I definitely hope to get involved in the future. I, like you, I, I definitely need to learn more about all of this. Um, I'm not as good in security as I should be. Um, and then lastly, I want to ask you, how did you, how did you get in with AT&T? Are you still doing that? Um, Actually, funny thing is, it was through OWASP. Okay. Um, you know, I met someone at a conference, and, you know, we, we hooked up on LinkedIn, and he said, you know, there's a position open, and I said, I'm interested. So, and, I'm, oh, so I'm still at AT&T, yes. Okay, now, um, so what exactly do you do there, if you can say? Yeah, see, this I have to be careful. I don't want to give yeah, too much yeah. away. Um, but is it, are you working with cell phones and, like, wireless networks, or are you no. working with computers? So this is the sort of ad divisions of AT&T. Okay. Um, yeah, I've never know, heard of AT&T Interactive. We run uh, yellowpages.com. Oh, okay. And a lot of, of related websites. Uh, okay. We're launching a new one called buzz.com. You know, just okay. happens to be around the same time Google came out with Buzz. Um, there's there's a lot of things that we do, but it's all related to web applications for okay. the most part. It, would you say that application security is the most important aspect of a website? Well, for someone like me, I would say yes. Yeah. But uh, generally, uh, you know, money is the more, most important thing to a website. If you can't yeah. make money, then you can't have it. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the credit card companies would rather let, you know, a thousand fraudulent transactions go through than to de deny one legitimate one. So money is always the driving factor. Yeah. But so there's times when, you know, deadlines kind of get pushed ahead of, you know, what the security team wants. But, you know, it, almost 80% or more of attacks today come in at the web application. If you have a, a single, you know, serious vulnerability in your website, you know, your whole website can be taken down. You know, it can be defaced, it can be destroyed, it can really hurt your reputation in a lot of ways. So in a lot of ways, security is related to money at the same time. 
And you bring up a very interesting point, I think, that that conflict between like business management and the programmers. Is there sometimes that sort of like dichotomy between your actual directions? Yes. And do you, do you think that they understand what you guys need on the programming side? Uh, well, you, it's really everyone pulling in different directions. But there's times when the, the programmers are pulling against what we want, you know, because we say this is the problem. They say that's entirely too hard to fix because my program manager is pulling on me to get this done. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I, I kind of went off track. What was the question? No, I'm, I think you, you sort of answered it because I was basically asking, um, is there a conflict between, like, the profit motive and building a secure application? And I think you just said that, um, in fact, there is. That yeah. sometimes you're being pushed by the project managers to uh, put something out that maybe isn't as secure as it should be, or right. as secure as you're comfortable putting something out. Especially something with incredibly high visibility. Yeah. So um, that was my uh, second question. Um, are, what are the biggest, bigger, um, I, I don't want to say targets, because I think that answer is clear, but... Um, are small websites um, more vulnerable to attack, or are the larger websites are? Obviously, the, ar the larger websites are bigger targets. Right. But um, is that necessarily true that more uh, they're m much more vulnerable? Well, it, it kind of comes down to risk analysis. You know, like you said, the high high visibility targets are usually ones you'd want to go after, so people spend more time securing those. Um, in many cases, you know, I'll just, you know, let's say eBay, you know, they've had billions of attacks trying to go against them. Um, a few were very successful, but, you know, e the eBay website itself is probably very, very secure now, but they might have a smaller application that's used by, you know, um, you know, high volume sellers only, or an international website written by someone else. And those web applications, even though they're they're kind of tied into the the bigger picture, they might not be as secure because they're not a big as big of a target, or the impact might be a little bit smaller. Um, but at the same time, usually those smaller web applications are used as a jumping point to get to the you know. Yeah, and but um, like even more than just eBay, I I get the feeling that it's so easy to build a website like a dynamic website with PHP and everything. I mean, you can kind of pick it up pretty quickly. Right. Um, there are a lot of people that just don't have this, the background in security to build a secure website. Are, are those websites that are maybe just kind of out there um, that you don't really have a, a comfortable business relationship with, are they um, more vulnerable? I guess they would be, right? Well, you, you never know. I mean, it all depends on who wrote the web yeah. application. But, you know, you bring up a point, you know, it's it's really easy. So there's a lot of people that, you know, let's say you have a small business and uh, you run a dry cleaners or something and you want a website built. Exactly. You're not going to go to, you know, these high consulting companies to build it. You want something cheap. So you say, you know, you know, does my kid know programming? Does any of his friends know it? You know, do they want to make a quick buck? You know, and so you get these kids or, you know, these people that just aren't very experienced copying and pasting examples from the internet yeah you know ripping yeah. things out of a book and you know they have no idea what they're doing let alone if what they're doing is secure mm -hmm. so you know luckily textbooks nowadays seem to be you know putting a little bit of security into it but there's still all those code samples and when you're writing a web application you just want it to work you know exactly. if you can just get it to work you know that's your job yeah and yet that's when you go back to you know the the 
uh, dry cleaner and say, hey, here's your website, it's done, it works, they have no idea whether it's secure or not. So, um, uh, so s- exactly, that's kind of like the drive. Um, is there, are, like, are the, does PHP implement security on its own, or do you, do you have to actually build that, right? You have to program all that? It's gotten a little bit better over time, but you still have to uh, know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know the version numbers, but one of the previous versions of PHP had a lot of... four. Right, 4 was the previous version, but I, I don't remember where they made the switch. They might have done it in like 5.1 or something. Oh, okay. Um, where there was a couple of uh, global settings that were enabled that were just like, you're just asking for trouble, and there's no reason they need to be enabled by default. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, would you say that security is well implemented across the web? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> security only became a concern in the past... You know, a major concern, we, we hear about identity theft came out, you know, really famous in the past, I'd say, generous 15 years. Um, most websites still consider it a luxury to be secure. So I would say that, you know, we're probably 10, 15 years behind. Oh, wow. that That's definitely uh, some food for thought there. Um, and hopefully shows like this in your class uh, will be able to kind of educate people about the importance of security and, and actually how to do it. And OWASP, of course, they're a great resource. Um, so now, where did br- new programmers start? Because like you said, there's, well, at least I, for me, kind of a self-taught person, there's so much insecurity, and it's really complex. I was just reading about uh, canonization. Am I saying that right? Canonicalization. Canonicalization. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I'm totally lost here. So where does a new programmer start? You know, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but the OWASP Top 10 is a great place to start. Uh, if you're familiar with the Top 10, then you've covered, you know, the 80-20 rule right there. Yeah. Um, related to the Top 10, OWASP, again, has a project called the WebGoat Project, which is an intentionally vulnerable web application that you can just download, and it's you just set it up, and they have lessons, you know, like, here's how you do cross-site scripting. Here's an example of... Uh, SQL injection, you know, it'll say, the goal of this exercise is to change everyone's salary, you know, and Mm -hmm. you go in there and you try to hack into the application, it tells you if you're successful or not. That's great. And then related to that, um, they sort of took it to the next level where they built a virtual image, uh, what do you call them, uh, a live CD you can throw into a computer that has 20 of these web applications. So you have Java, you have PHP, you have .NET, you have... uh, old ones, you have more updated ones, you have ones that have, you know, one class of attacks versus another. So it's a really great project. Yeah, that that sounds uh, very interesting. So now, is there, I feel like it's it's really like a cat, of mou- cat and mouse game, isn't it? With yes. the hackers and, and the security guys. Um, how, like, what is the evolution of uh, some of these guidelines for OWASP, for example? Is it you see a, a problem coming up, or is it you're always responding? Well, it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, they have these zero days that come out that, you know, nobody has any protection against. Um, new attacks come out all the time. Uh, you know, people invent attacks constantly, and it's it's kind of a joke at the same time because there's a couple mailing lists and people say oh I just here's a new class of vulnerabilities and they just start throwing in buzzwords and buzzwords just to do something that everyone kind of already knew about mm-hmm. um, but so so there's the yeah there's two types you know the types where hackers will just sort of say 
here's an exploit in the wild, this is what you can do. And at the same time, there's researchers that are saying, ooh, this, this looks like it could be a problem. And they'll, if it's involving, like, for example, Tomcat or something, they'll email the administrator and say, here's a problem, I think you guys should fix it. And then eventually they'll release it to the public and say, you know, here's an attack or something. So what's Tomcat? Is that a proprietary product? Or? Oh, I'm sorry, that's an open source application server. Oh, okay. That runs Java. Okay. Yeah, I, I only know PHP. <laughs> um, what are the biggest mistakes you see in novice programmers code is it just that there's no regard for security right I mean I don't really know that it's a mistake it's 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 ignorance but not in an insulting way it's just they don't know any better yeah you know um, not to knock on my education at UCI but there's very little mention of security um, so they, they just don't really know what to do. And when I look at their code, it's just, this, to me, it's really obvious. But at the same time, they just don't know. So it's, you just have to educate them. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you emphasize security? You said you took some interesting classes, but did you emphasize security in your studies here at UCI? Uh, in a way, it was kind of accidental. Um, I just noticed that the classes I, were t I was taking were sort of aligning me to this certain... Uh, speci specialization, you know, so I could get that extra little mark on my diploma or yeah. whatever. Um, and then just because of that, I ended up taking a class in networking that wasn't intentionally about security, but there was a lot of concepts like, you know, um, we're going to set up a router and communicate two posts on either side. And, you know, oh, that's not encrypted, so someone could steal it, something like that. And then I took a, um, a class on cryptography in the ICS department, which was actually my favorite, um, which got, really got me into it. And at the same time, I needed to take some math classes, and they had a math class on cryptography. So I said, okay, I'll take that. So. Oh, okay. Um, are security and performance competing interests? Yes. In a way, they are. They are, because, yeah, security is usually an add-on. And a lot of times, the, the secure way of doing things is also the best way of doing things, which is usually the most performant way of doing things. But, you know, there's a lot of cases, you know, you throw in a firewall into a network, you're introducing latency. You know, security decreases performance. You know, it's really not noticeable, but technically, yes. Um, there's even more heavyweight devices, such as a web application firewall, that really could slow things down. Um, and once again, you're introducing a new device. And, um, but what about logging? Because I know um, I've been looking at um, the uh, OWASP, OWASP guide, and they're talking about, um, you know, logging errors and, and all that stuff. Um, does that add any significant performance decrease? Yes. It does. Um, but I, I could talk about logging for days, actually. Um, but technically, yes. I think it's obviously worth it, um, even just for debugging purposes, let alone security purposes. If you're going to say that debugging or logging or puts a performance uh, hamper on it, then I'd say throw it all out and just do security logging only then. Mm -hmm. But obviously no one wants to do that. <laughs> okay. Um, and then how about security and, and usability? Are, are they kind of competing interests as well? Um, no. I I don't think so. Because I I was um looking at the OWASP guide again and they were talking about how you shouldn't have remember be, remember me functions. Oh okay. It, but clearly that's something that I think a lot of users would um 
appreciate, I guess. But it, it does have security implications, right? Well, I don't think they said don't use Remember Me. They said well, yeah, in, do it in right high, if you exactly. have to. Yeah. yeah, they're kind of hinting that you shouldn't do it because it's easy to get wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, technically in that case, yeah, security would affect usability. But going back to secure coding principles, I'm thinking uh, it's just a mentality that when you do things securely, you're doing them a lot more intentionally. And I, I tend to think that websites just work better because it, it, there's more attention to detail. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get tech, I mean, maybe uh, if you have some funky kind of JavaScript going on that might be insecure, it might break the way your, your website behaves. You know, like you can't click on certain things or something like that. Um, security in that case would help you because you probably say, well, I don't need JavaScript to do this or something like that. Okay. Okay. Um, can a website ever be completely secure? No. <laughs> <laughs> it, it can be completely secure within reasonable, uh, you know, accuracy to a, curtain, a certain day's standards. So you could probably code up a website that to, by today's standards is completely secure, but you don't know about the attacks that the hackers haven't released yet. You don't know about the upcoming research. You don't know about the undiscovered bugs in the web server that runs the application. Um, so it actually, it was kind of funny because at the conference I put together last year, that question was asked, and people laughed. <laughs> and I thought, you know, yes, it sounds funny, but... It's it's a reasonable question. Yeah. But there's no reasonable answer. Very well said. Um, but I, I think that also kind of gets to that competition between business and um, and security because it is more expensive to keep pushing the bar on security, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Especially when nobody thought about security until maybe 10 years ago. You know, it's it's an added something in the way. We're always getting in the way of people doing things that they were used to doing before. Why do you think security has become such a big issue? Was it identity theft? Is that what kind of like, is it is it public reaction or um, what? Well, yeah, I, I, it all comes down to money. Um, identity theft, yes. But at the same time, you know, every time eBay gets hacked or something, people lose faith in it and you lose customers. Or you know, maybe your website gets defaced and there's an obscene image on it. Now, all of a sudden, the search engines are blocking your website. You know, the, it's always comes back to the money. Wow. Uh, those are things that I've <laughs> never thought of, but um, that would have an enormous impact if you were blocked by Google or, or one of the other search engines. Um, how much security does a website need? I think that's kind of a difficult question to answer. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's very loaded, but... Um, you know, it it needs to be it needs to have reasonable security. Um, most basic things, you know, your operating system needs to be patched. You know, how hard is that to do? Um, you know, you need to be running the most current version of your web server. How hard is that to do? Um, you know, you need to write secure code. You know, that's that's kind of hard, but uh, you, you just need to do things reasonably. Now, explain what patching is for people that don't know. So, patching is whenever. Uh, there's an exploit, for example, Windows. You get that little pop-up every second Tuesday of the month or whatever. It says there's fixes for these vulnerabilities. So the patch will just sort of overwrite the code to a more secure version of that code. The the actual operating system. Right. Okay. Or the software, you know, for yeah. example, Windows Media Player, Outlook, Word. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So now let's actually get into uh, talking about 
actual attacks that people can do. So, um, and I basically, like you said, went off the OWASP top 10 and, and picked some of them that I thought were interesting. Um, so what is an injection attack? So an injection attack can be thought of um, sort of as a hacker being able to insert code into your application. Um, it, it's, it's sort of how, uh, you know, a web, an operating system can be taken over by a remote service. Um, I don't know if you've heard of remote code execution. Um, injection, the, the most prevalent example is SQL injection, where if you have a query and your web application runs a query, a hacker can actually alter your query. So if you said, you know, give me all, you know, restaurants whose names start with an R, um, the hacker would say, okay, there's that query, but this is what I want to do with it. And they would change the structure of the query um, to either access something they weren't supposed to see, to modify the data. I mean, there's a lot of other things you could do with yeah. SQL injection. Um, but injection is sort of a blanket term because there's other types. There's XPath injection if you're using um, XML as a data source because it also uses a query language. You can inject queries, basically. Um, command injection, if your application sort of runs a command on your operating system, the hacker might be able to execute a different command, for example. Okay. Um, so, now how exactly can it be achieved? I think you kind of already answered this. Um, it, you can, like, for example, type in something like delete from, and then the name of some table, and, like, delete all the data from a right. SQL table, right? Because the database, you know, it just does what you tell it to do. And if the application tells it to do what the hacker told it to do, then the hacker's controlling the database. So, so basically, you could write queries into a text field, and if you weren't properly protecting what goes to right. the to the um, server or to the uh, the database, it will actually be interpreted as SQL in in the interpreter for the for the database. Exactly. Okay. Um, because what you're you're accepting the values as is. You're not doing anything special with them. You're not checking to see what the hacker is putting in. You know, you're just blindly executing it. So how is that? How how could you avoid something like that? Well, there's there's a lot of things you can do, and I'll I'll focus on SQL injection. Um, I'll just sort of go down the list in terms of effectiveness, starting with the least effective, but still very effective. Um, you know, let's say uh, it says enter your account number. You enter one two three four. It's all numeric. Why would you ever accept anything that's not numeric in that case. Mm -hmm. So there you've just taken care of, uh, you know, a majority of SQL injection attacks, not all. Um, the second thing you would do is you can actually take the data that's entered, given by a, a user and turn it into a sort of uh, harmless version of it. So when a hacker injects SQL code, he'll be using a lot of, uh, what do you call it, punctuation marks or whatever. You know, you've got to close off the quote on a query. You can put a semicolon to end it. Mm -hmm. You can insert comments or whatever. The database knows that those are legitimate characters. There's no reason why you shouldn't allow a semicolon. You shouldn't allow an apostrophe, especially if someone's name is O'Brien or something. Yeah. Um, so what you do is you convert those into harmless equivalents. It's called ex uh, escaping or encoding in some cases. So you can just insert those values as is, and it won't break the structure of the query. It'll still just search on that value, which will probably return no, no results. Um, the, the third thing you can do is um, only use stored procedures. Uh, when you only use stored procedures, you, you, the stored procedure knows what data it wants. You know, it says, I want a number, I want a string, 
I want a number and two more numbers. Uh, if a hacker tries to change the structure of that query, it just won't execute. And the easiest and most effective way to do things is to use prepared statements or parameterized queries that effectively do the same thing as a stored procedure where it says, you know, at this spot I need a number, at this spot I need a string, at this spot I need a number, and it'll, um, you can bind the variables to each placeholder so that a hacker can't change the structure of the query. Once again, it's all about keeping the structure of the query where you know where the, the variables are going into the query. You set the placeholders. Okay. Very, um, there's a lot there. So, <laughs> um, so like the first one you're saying is, is that basically like form validation? Yes. Okay. At the application level? Yes. And actually something that will apply to every <clears throat> single thing on that list is, is input validation. Yeah, yeah. If you validate your input, you're going to take care of a majority of attacks right away. Oh, uh, okay. Good to know. Um, can you explain what cross-site scripting is? Cross-site scripting occurs when a hacker is able to uh, actually inject JavaScript code into a web application. Um, so if you have a field that somewhere else is displayed on that page, a hacker can put in a JavaScript payload that's executed by the next user that sees it. So there's two main examples where um, you set a parameter to the malicious script, you click or you trick someone to clicking on that, they visit the web page that has a vulnerability, the JavaScript executes, um, there you go. Another example is um, when it's actually stored in the web application itself. So classic example is a message board. A hacker just goes to the message board and then puts the JavaScript right there on the page. And everyone that goes to visit that page, that JavaScript will execute. Um, and that might not sound so bad, but with JavaScript you can do a lot of things. Um, you can change the way the website behaves. You can, like I said with those JavaScript links earlier, you can change the way they behave, send someone to a malware site. Um, you can steal the user's cookies, which can be used to steal their session, which can be used to steal their identity. So we go back to the identity theft. Um, if there's any data on the page, JavaScript can pull that data and send it somewhere else. It can phone home with that data. So it's so pretty serious. JavaScript is uh, pretty powerful, right? It, it's, it seems pretty simple. Um, but it can do a lot. It's a, it's a pretty uh, dynamic programming language. It's very useful, and it makes websites work the way we want them to, and it also makes them work the way we don't want them to. Yeah. Um, so uh, how, how exactly can you even prevent that? Do you have to look for um, keywords in, in, in J JavaScript or... That's sort of um, the blacklist approach, where you would say, I don't want these specific characters. Yeah, so, so there's two separate things, right? There's blacklist and whitelist. Correct. And so, yeah, blacklist is sort of, you know, you can't come in. And then whitelist is sort of the bouncer at a nightclub, you know, unless you're on the list, you can't come in. So if you're displaying a number field, once again, or someone's name, um, there's no reason you should allow those brackets that can start a script tag or a semicolon, for example. Um, so once again, input validation. And then sort of like SQL injection, you can also encode the characters to something harmless. So example, the, the angle bracket gets converted to ampersand LT, but it's still displayed as an angle bracket. It just won't execute as JavaScript. Okay. So it's actually a very simple solution. And in my mind, there's no excuse for it to exist because the solution is so simple. So hopefully we won't see that in the future. Okay, well, thank you so much. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to uh, finish talking about uh, application security. We've got a couple more 
a tax to go over, and then uh, we'll be all done for the day. All right, uh, we'll be right back. Hi, my name is Aaron, and I'm a survivor of mannequinism. Mannequinism is basically when you turn into a hard plastic shell. This is from not being politically active. For me, it started when I didn't register to vote. And then I stopped volunteering, and before I knew it, I wasn't doing anything. And that's when I found a small patch of plastic on my right shoulder. Protect yourself from mannequinism. Log on to fightmannequinism.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. According to a survey conducted at UC Irvine last fall, over 98% of UCI students think that cigarettes are harmful. Yet nearly 20% of students surveyed reported that they currently smoke. Smoke-free policies can help reduce this statistic. During the past year, START, the Student Task Force Advocating Reducing Tobacco at UCI has been working with the Department of Student Affairs, Associated Graduate Students, Staff Assembly, and the Community Alliance Network. You can help create change in tobacco policy at UCI. For more information, contact the Health Education Center at 949-UCI-WELL. For free help to quit smoking, contact 866-NEW-LUNG. Made possible by the County of Orange Healthcare Agency, Tobacco Use Prevention Program through funds received from the National Tobacco Settlement. KUCI presents a series of pointers to promote tolerance and cultural awareness. By following these simple steps, KUCI listeners can create a better world for all. Tip number one. Attend a play. Listen to music or go to a dance performance by artists whose race or ethnicity is different from your own. For more ways to promote cultural awareness, stay tuned to KUCI. All right, and we're back. Uh, you're listening to Tech Talk here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Shane Burke, and joining me is Neil Matatal, an information security engineer for AT&T Interactive and Orange County Chapter Lead for OWASP, which, of course, stands for Open Web Application Security Project. And he's also going to be teaching a class called application, uh, Web Application Security at the UCI Extension. Okay, so we, we last uh, kind of left off talking about XSS um, or cross-site scripting and um, uh, injection attacks. And uh, now I, I kind of wanted to ask you about um, what a direct object reference is and um, how an, a, an attacker could use it. Um, so it's uh, the whole insecure direct object reference, I don't really like that name, but I can't really think of one better, so I guess I'll just have to accept it. Um, but let's say, going back to a bank example, um, if your account ID is a parameter, you know, you go to bank.com, ID equals 123. Um, it's very easy to change that ID equals 123 to 456, and if 456 gets you into that other person's account, that's an insecure direct object reference. Um, you're able to access something else based on these parameters um, with an identifier of some kind, and there's no authorization being done under the scene. Mm -hmm. You know, you say, give me account 456, and the application says, sure, here it is. I don't care who you are. When it sh really should be saying, let me see who you are first. Let me see if you're allowed to access 456, and then I'll get back to you. Um, so we, there's a lot of cases where we see that. Um, so now, how do you present, prevent this? Is it, um, I think I was reading somewhere... It might not be for this, but there's like a, a mapping scheme that you can use. Is that how you would pr how you could kind of uh, deal with this problem? Well, yeah, there's a couple ways. Um, the best way is always to obviously check 
if the object actually belongs to the user that's asking for it. Um, there's another example, though. Um, so that would solve that use case. There's another example, um, uh, file share. Um, if you're able to go to a website and you share a file and it comes back with something you can guess, like, you know, britneyspears.mp3 or whatever, you could, you know, once again, guess what that is. But what you should really be doing is sending back some random string that nobody has any idea what it is that on the back end maps to Britney Spears in this case. So no one can sort of guess what it is, um, you know, say, well, instead of Britney Spears, I want, uh, you know, what was it, uh, Christina Aguilera, you know? Yeah. So it, you wouldn't be able to just type in Christina Aguilera and get the music. You'd have to guess what that equivalent is. Well, on the back end, there should be this random association of this random number to the actual object so that you can only go one way and not the other. So you'd have to store uh, a, a map of references between this fake number and the actual object and have a way of going back and forth only internally on the server. Mm -hmm. So it, it's basically um, showing the user one thing, but you're instead using like a, a translation and then using... Uh, you know, whatever, like some sort of ID, some number for a file or something um, right. on, on your actual, in your program. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I think the strategy is actually to keep, to, to get technical about it, to keep two parallel maps going. So one has a, a mapping between this random number and a, like a di an ID, like one. Mm -hmm. And then the other map will have the mapping of one to go back to Britney Spears in this case, so you'd have to go through it to get the reference. I see, okay. So you'd actually have to, um, if, like if you were a hacker, you'd have to do a join on those two, two tables to actually get like the total map. Uh, yeah, but you, you would have no access to those. You'd have no idea how one relates to the other. I, I see. You know, technically what you could do is, um, you know, if you're able to record everyone's you know, activity, you know, if you're able to, your roommate or whatever is downloading all these files, you said, oh, he entered ABC123 and got back one thing, ABC124 got back a different thing, and then you could actually remember those references, but the correct way to do it on the server would be to change those references for every user that comes. I see. So even if he's able to record it, he's not able to get back the original. Okay. So it's uh, staying one step ahead of the hackers once again. Um and uh, so what is cross-site script forgery? Uh, cross-site request forgery? I'm sorry, yes. Uh, that's one of my favorites. And one of my favorites in terms of, uh, I just think it's interesting. Um, it's kind of a, a little more conceptually difficult to understand. So I'll just go through a, a scenario. Um, a hacker goes into a website, figures out how it works, whatever, records it. Um, and then what happens is he he actually puts an image tag or a source tag or something on any random website, doesn't matter which one it is, could be anywhere in the world, that actually makes a request back to that website he wants to hack into. Um, he just knows the right URL, the right parameters, whatever. But he can't get into it because he's not allowed. He can't log in. So that, that image tag stays there. Another user who does have access logs into that application you know, and then what happens is they get the cookies. You know, it identifies the session or the user or the authentication, whatever. Um, but then what happens is the logged in user goes to that same message board that the hacker posted the image on. And just because it's part of the web page, it gets displayed. And then what happens is the user who visited that web page, um, the browser actually makes a request to go get that image. It doesn't know that it's not an image. 
it's actually going back to that website that the user logged into. I'm just going to go back to bank, so I have something yeah, to refer to yeah. as. So he logs into the bank, and then this image tag points back to the bank's web application. But since it's coming from the logged-in user's browser, it actually takes the cookies with it. So even though the user didn't want to initiate this request, that image tag just fired off a request to the bank with the user's cookies. So the bank says, well, it came from the right IP address, because it came from your browser. Yeah has the right cookies, so the user's logged in, I'm going to go ahead and execute this request. And now the hacker was able to execute a request on behalf of the other user. So in the source of the image, he would have the address to a protected web, web page. Right. And so then, now how would the hacker actually have access to that if it was going through the user's Well, let's say browser? the request that the hacker put in the image tag transferred money to the hacker's account. Oh, okay. Or change the password of the user to something he knows. Okay. Or, you know, initiated, a, you know, a closing of the account or a change in name or change in address. Okay. So there are, that's <laughs> um, kind of scary because I think a lot of people don't understand um, exactly how the HTTP requests actually work. Um, so a lot of people that maybe are, are new to programming, definitely a lot of people who are just going on the web. You right. Know, just, you know, my grandpa or my grandma, you know, um, they don't understand that at all. So you can actually have um, a request that looks like it's coming from you, but it's actually because a, a malicious user posted it on some third-party site. Right. Wow. Um, so now how, how's, how do you prevent something like that? Is that... Well... Uh, it's sort of to, to to talk about prevention, one thing that is key to understand is that every single web application out there is vulnerable to this unless you do something specifically to protect yourself, which translates into every single web site out there is vulnerable, basically. Um, it's not... It's somewhat of a newer attack, but not too new, I guess. Um, a lot of frameworks are actually building protection into this, um, so specifically what the protection is, is you insert a random token into each form that performs a destructive action. Um, and then you verify that value on the server. So the way that works is, um, you know, when you visit your bank's web page and you have that form that says transfer money, that random token will be automatically inserted into your web page. And then uh, when you submit the form, the server checks, okay, the token's good, this is a, a good request. The hacker who put the image on that web page, he has no idea what that random token is going to be. Um, so he has no idea how to fake that value. Your bank will get the request from the image tag and says, oh, it's missing this value or the token isn't correct, so this is a false request. We're going to get rid of it. So uh, like in that, in that case, you would be using a form. How could you actually make, um, like in the URL for the image source, how would you actually, would, that have, would it have to be a get? Um, so that's, request. you bring up a good point, is people say, well, image and source, or script tags, which is the other common way of doing it, are get requests, so why not only accept post? Well, because the um, offensive code can live anywhere in the world, even the hacker's website, what he can do is make an auto-submitting JavaScript form that converts it to post. Okay. So he can fake the post request. Wow. That um, that's really scary. I thought it was being clever. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. Um, so 
Yeah, it, it's so really... security is certainly one of these things where, um, would you say that you kind of have to rest on the shoulders of of people that are smarter than you and not try and reinvent the wheel? Oh, well, standards are good, and they're standards for a reason. Follow the standards, and then you you usually will stay doing, you know, you'll be okay. Okay. Um, So we just need to put these security standards in. Um, Let's talk about session management. Um, What are the major vulnerabilities in session management? Um, well, there's a ton. Um, that's it, also one of those really wide questions. Yeah, yeah. Is it, um, well, let's take, for example, like stealing a token. Okay. Um, for, you know, whatever, like a, a stealing session people's ID. cookies. Yeah, session okay. IDs and stuff. Yeah, if so, for example, if your website has cross-site scripting and someone can steal your session cookie and your web server doesn't authenticate the IP address with the cookie, now the hacker can log in from, you know, wherever. Um, so cross-site scripting is actually a session management flaw in itself. Um, like I said, assuming you don't validate it on the back end. Uh, the other, you know, another broad area is, um, you know, remember me tokens like we talked about, or password reset questions. You know, I think Sarah Palin and uh, Paris Hilton have taught the world that putting, you know, easy to guess, uh, remember me questions, you know, using your dog's first name or something, uh, that's no good. Um, some people actually try to generate their own session IDs. So uh, most web servers are really good at generating random session IDs, but for some reason people will somehow override this and put guessable ones. So, you know, if you can predict an, a, se- a previous, I'm sorry, if you can predict what a future session ID is going to be, you can just create that cookie yourself and wait for it to become valid. Um, which actually leads to another one called session fixation, where you can actually uh, set the value. So let's say you go to a website for the first time, you don't have a cookie yet. Uh, If a hacker is able to set that cookie value using cross-site scripting, for example, um, and your server accepts that value, well, he knows what that value is. So now you log in, and now he's logged in. I see. Um, You know, poor pass... You know... you know, uh, poor password uh, restrictions are bad. Um, oh, another one that's often overlooked is, uh, this is especially bad in public computers, but when you log into a website and you go from being an anonymous user to a user with an ID, that session ID should change. Um, because then what happens, let's say you log in, you log out, your session ID is still around. I mean, the next person that can come in and use the computer, I mean, they could be logged into your account, basically. Yeah. That's um, that's one of the things. Like, how how can you actually prevent that? Because I think UCI library all the time. Everyone's logging into Facebook. I mean, um, it doesn't even seem like there's a way that you could avoid what people are physically doing. Like when they leave the computer, whether or not they log out, and then you combine that with the remember me sorts of stuff. And um, I don't know. It's amazing that they don't have more problems over at Facebook. <laughs> well, Facebook. Uh yeah, they they actually over time have become pretty good about security. Um, they're they're actually even leading the edge in some ways. Um, just f- for example, um, I think they were the first website to use clickjacking protection or something like that, which is another class of attacks. Um, we talk about you know not logging out when you leave your computer. You should put login timeouts, which is another common problem people forget about. 
Uh, but it's in some ways you you have to rely on the user. You know, if they forget to log out, yeah, that's their fault. Yeah. You know, especially on a site like Facebook, people are like, oh, I don't want to have to enter my password all the time. I just want to stay logged in. They go to a public computer. They don't log out. You know, but for a bank website, obviously there should be a timeout. Yeah. Um, you know, people do silly things. I mean, first of all, you should never use a public computer to do anything <laughs> important other than maybe check Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and people can debate about how important that is. Well, I mean, I'm saying that's not important. Yeah, that's yeah. something you could do yeah. on a public computer. Yeah. But certainly bank of stuff probably should leave. And then we can get into, you know, key loggers and, you know, man in the middle. And, I mean, it can just go on and on. Just don't use a public computer for anything at all, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's very good advice. Uh, that's something you should we should uh, let Mari know about. She does a show all about privacy right before us. Mm. Um, uh, so we're towards the end of the of the hour now. So how can people get involved in if maybe they got really interested in security by listening to you today? Um, what can they do to get involved either with OWASP or you know with your class? Um, well, yeah. Education is a great thing. Um, I hope that schools all over the place integrate more security into their education. Um, but for the person who's more eager and uh, self-motivated, you know, just go to a couple websites. You know, the OWASP isn't the only thing, but it's a great starting point. Uh, there's there's plenty of websites on web security. Um, the Web Application Security Consortium is another great one. Um, there's a couple. Uh, blogs that I follow. Actually, a lot of what I learned came from blogs. Um, Jeremiah Grossman has a great blog. He puts out an article every Friday that says, you know, the best in web application security where you can go and learn about new attacks or new thoughts on existing attacks or just news in general. Um, the OWASP local chapter meetings are, are a great resource. They're in just about every major city around even the world. Um, there's, you know, there's an L.A. chapter, even though the Orange County chapter is sort of dormant right now. Uh, get a, Read a book. Um, there's a good book called uh, Foundations of Security, What Every Programmer Should Know. I think it's really good about not being too high level, you know, not sort of talking over everyone, but sort of digging deep into the beginning and the root causes. Uh, you know, play around. Try hacking. You know, go download the... Uh, the vulnerable web applications, you know, tr get involved. Uh, find a you know vulnerability in a website, but be careful if you do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, look at your old code. Find vulnerabilities in it. I'm guarantee. I'll guarantee there'll be tons and tons in there. All right. Well, there we go. Thank you so much, Neil. I really appreciate it. Um, all right. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.